Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller. I'm Susie Younger. An African-American licensed psychotherapist. I'm also a licensed therapist. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias. Anything that marginalizes and oppresses. As a white woman, I ask the questions white people are too afraid to ask. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, Susie and I will have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? We are so excited for our next guest. Erin Jones is an activist who uses her personal story to help move others towards racial healing. She's been honored at the highest levels for her roles in education. She is a self-proclaimed tall Black woman with an Afro, She's a daughter, a mother, a partner, an athlete, a musician, an author. We'll talk about your new book and a lover of fashion. As she says, don't ever judge a book by its cover. Welcome, Erin Jones. Thank you so much. I need to have you come do my intro wherever I go. <laughs> She's literally the best at it. I don't even try it. Um, Aaron, first of all, I want to go on record as saying your fro gives me life. I uh, breathe it in every time I see it. It's absolutely (laughs) just a wonderful part of your being. Um, And it's great to officially meet you. And once again, thank you for being so flexible. Of course. That's what life's about. Yes. Timing. Yes. I appreciate it. Um, So First question is, you know, I got to know, what was it like being raised in Minnesota and being you, first of all? Well, you were born in Minnesota and adopted and raised in the Netherlands, which is even more perplexing. So tell us about that. (laughs) You know, I mean, the thing is that, you know, a year and a half ago, it wouldn't have mattered so much to people. But now when I tell people I was born in St. Paul, Minneapolis, I mean it means something different right now. Right. Right. And, and so I was born out of the body of a white woman, but obviously not white because y'all, you (laughs) cannot grow this beautiful fro and this is natural. Okay. There's no wig here. This is all me, but I was birthed out of the body of a white woman who was not allowed to keep me because my father was Negro and that's actually Mm. on my birth certificate. So she gave me away. I started life at the children's home society adopted by white people. They decided pretty quickly, like Minnesota was not the place. And that's how we ended up in Europe. So they didn't go to Atlanta or DC or LA. They were just like, we're just going to go across an ocean and raise our child. I mean, I think all that's happening in Minnesota, all that has happened in Minnesota over the last year and a half is not surprising to me at all, because it's one of the reasons we, I was given away. It's one of the reasons that we left there because race relations are not good there. I think we have this notion in the United States that the South is where the problems are. And I would offer that we have a problem as a country with <laughs> talking about race, with addressing race issues. So that's just Absolutely. one manifestation of it. Absolutely. And and just, they're like, oh, the Netherlands. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, so my dad applied to teach overseas and his first job offer actually came from the American School of Iran. And I think you two are probably old enough to remember Iran in the late 70s. Well, he applied actually in 1975 for a teaching job there. And he tells the story of being on the phone with the superintendent who's getting ready to offer him the job. My dad was a math teacher and um, one of the best math teachers I've ever encountered in my life, like an amazing human being. 
But my dad is like that nerdy master yes. from, I don't know if y'all have seen the movies of the pocket protector and the pens and the, that <laughs> was my dad. Okay. That, like, that is totally my dad, totally nerdy math guy. And he's in this interview with the superintendent for the American schools of Iran and the superintendent gets ready to offer him the job and then stops and says, oh, wait, I forgot to ask if you have any questions. And my nerdy white dad from northern Minnesota, I don't know how he even thought to ask this question, but he asked, so I have black children. How do you think your community is going to handle that? Wow. That was his one question. Wow. And the superintendent was not prepared for that one question and said, well, I wouldn't have a problem, but I think my community might have a problem. And my dad said, I could never work for you. And if you know anything about Iran, just three years later, that school would be taken over by terrorists. And I think all the time about what if my dad had not asked that question and that was his first job offer? What if we'd ended up there? Like, how would my life be different today? And so how did we get to the Netherlands? Because that was his second interview and they offered him a job and we loved it so much that we stayed there. And my parents actually lived there for over 30 years. Wow. That, that took my breath away. That was pretty, uh, pretty intense. Uh, Just the fact that he thought to ask that question and then responded the way he did to what he received as an answer. It's just, that's pretty powerful. Um, And so being of mixed race, just in general, I know this is like a broad stroke, but just want to give yeah. an idea of how that's impacted your experience being raised by white parents. So, I mean, I look at my life in phases. So there's the America phase number one, which is me birth to five with white parents, not having to think about race at all, but knowing every time we went to a restaurant, every time we went to the store, everyone turned around to look at us. And I, I clearly remember that as a little girl being othered. I didn't understand that it was about skin color until later, but I knew that there was something like really strange. And then we go to Europe and not that Europe doesn't have race issues because it does. I never felt them though. I never, ever, not once felt them. And, you know, for folks that have studied like the Harlem Renaissance and just some of the big black writers and entertainers, Europe was a place really until recently that really loved black folks. And especially if you were an entertainer, I was an athlete, I speak four languages, I played instruments. So all the things that they love about, I fit that. And so as a young person, because I could speak German enough to function when we were in Germany, I could speak French enough to function through Switzerland and France and Belgium. I just could blend in in a lot of ways. And so I never really had to think about skin color until my dad brought me back to the United States when I was 15 for the special trip. And we spent a week in DC and a week in Harlem. And I remember getting off the plane in DC and looking, and you're in DC right now, so you know what I'm about to say, looking around and there are no white people. It's all black people. And and understand, I went to the United Nations school in the Netherlands. So we had seen American presidents, like every president from Jimmy Carter to George Bush walked the halls of my school. And in my mind, every person in government was white because it's all I had ever seen. Every ambassador that was the ambassador for the United States was a white man. And so in my mind, Washington, D.C., our capital, would be filled with white people. And I can remember getting off that plane with nine other students from my school, all of them white, and looking at the tarmac. And all I see is 
people who look like me with hair like me. And I just burst into tears. So, and understand as a high school student, I was a jock. Like I was six feet tall at 12. I was a big baller soccer player. And I am in tears when I see all these black people and I don't even know how to function. And my, my dad is already into the airport. It comes back out because I'm not with him. And he's like, honey, what did you fall? Like what's going on with mm. you? And I said, dad, you never told me there were so many people who look like me. And he said, honey, I'm from Northern Minnesota. I didn't know there were this many black people. I mean, he really legitimately didn't know. And this is before the internet. So like my dad's experience with America is Minnesota. And, you know, so he just didn't know to tell me. And ironically, that week, we were going to spend a week in D.C. with several schools from the United States. And one of the schools happened to be an all-black school from South Carolina. And I'll never forget, we get off the bus at the hotel and my dad goes in to check us in and he comes back out and he's all giddy. He, and my dad is not an emotional person. So I know something's going on. And he's like, honey, oh my gosh, there's an all black school here. And I made sure I got you a room with these two black girls. So you're going to be staying. And again, my dad thinking about this stuff, like, I don't know how he understood, but he knew. And so I bring my stuff to my room and I'm so excited. There are black girls in my room and I run in and I'm like, hi. My name is Erin Addison, and I'm from the Hague, the Netherlands. And these girls look at me like, who is this? She is like an alien from another planet. Like, what the heck? They just kind of stutter a little bit, and then we introduce each other. Now, there, meanwhile, there's a white girl from my school that's with me, too. I could not tell you today who that was, because she just suddenly disappeared. She vanished. I could not tell you who rims with me from my school. I'm sure she was super uncomfortable, but... I end up in a room with these two black girls and what they could have done, which I have seen happen to many biracial kids for my 30 year teaching career, they could have just written me off and said, she is not like us. We don't want to have anything to do with her, but no, they did the opposite. They brought me into their community and those black girls took me out with them to every event that they did with their school. So I hung out with all the black kids that week and they took me shopping and I got black girl clothes. I don't even know what that meant, but I, you know, I, I got to dress like the black girls and we don't have malls in Europe. So I got to go to a, a mall in DC and um, go shopping with them. And, and then I'll never forget this. The electric slide was the biggest dance at the time. And they taught me how to do the electric slide. And I love to dance, but like to have a dance like that, you know, I'm just like, I have found my people. I have found my people. But then, you know, I had to go back to Europe. Right. Forget that. I'll never forget that Saturday when their wow. bus came to pick them up and drive them away. And I was inconsolable. I was absolutely inconsolable because I knew this is pre-internet. I mean, you can give me your address. I can write you letters, but letters take like three weeks to get to people in America. We're not going to stay friends. And I knew I was leaving a piece of me in America. And I remember getting back to Holland and we landed in the airport and my mom had been my best friend my whole life. And I don't know what to say to her, but I know she's not enough anymore. Mm. And imagine being 15 and knowing that your mom is not enough anymore. And I am just... I'm devastated. I don't know how to communicate that. So I just tell my mom, I'm tired. I don't want to talk. And we don't talk for two weeks. I literally, I'd come home from school every day for the next two weeks, just go straight to my room and cry. Like I didn't do any homework. I was just depressed. And one day, Friday, my parents get home from school. They're both teachers. And they announced to me, hey, we're going away for the weekend. Usually we got a babysitter, no babysitter. They didn't explain to us where they were going. I have a little brother too. And um, they just went away. 
And I stayed in bed the entire weekend. And they came home on a Sunday night. And I'll never forget, mom knocks on my door and she opens it up and it's dark. I've just been in this dark bedroom all weekend. And she has a box. And, you know, they had gone to every American bookstore all across Western Europe. And they bought me every book by a Black author, every video about Black history, every video they could find about Blackness with Black actors. And my mom showed up in my bedroom that Sunday night and she said, I'm sorry, we should have done this for you a long time ago. Will you ever forgive us? I know I'm not enough. I didn't even have to tell her. She knew. I know I'm not enough, but here's what I will promise you. I will read every book. I will watch every video. And I know that you're going to leave me someday and go back to America. And she was absolutely right. I left her and came to America and never went back. So when people are listening and they ask about uh, cross-racial adoption, yeah, this is the lesson we want them to hear. Mm-hmm. For me, it's not about don't adopt children of color. Absolutely. It's about understand what it means to adopt children of color. And uh, you led them. That's just powerful that you led your parents where they needed to go. That's that's mm-hmm. a lot. Well done. And they're courageous too. You know, yeah. I I think about my parents now. And I mean, back in the 70s, there were no organizations training up white parents to raise black children. There were no YouTube videos to show parents how to do this thing, right? They they had to learn as they went. They had to learn how to do my hair without YouTube and without books and without support. And so I just want to honor my parents too. Like they they have done the most to make sure they show up. For me. And they continue. I'm 50 now and they still show up for me. And they're still my biggest fans and champions. And my mom reads every book on Black history. She reads every social justice article she can find. Hey, Erin, have you seen this one yet? <laughs> um, so they're still doing their work today. Yeah, I mean, definitely, you know, respect for them, not folding into the fragility and, you know, forcing you into a box that you didn't fit in and them expanding it to create space that it's yeah. likely you have to fight for the rest of your life. So Yeah, absolute respect. You kind of answered this, but I'd like you to elaborate a little bit. Talk about how the different parts of your identity, you know, all that were mentioned in the intro, how they informed parts of yourself, you know? So like the way I I like to think of it is that there's different parts of ourselves. And which part of you took the lead in the integration process? Because clearly you seem very well integrated. So how, how did that happen? So it's funny that you say that because I tell students now all the time, I'm going to start with this and then I'll back, I'll back up to kind of the beginning of that story. Mm -hmm. I tell students now I'm too black for some people and not black enough for others. I'm too white for some people, not white enough for others. I'm too Christian for some people, not Christian enough for others. I will always be Aaron enough. I will Mm -hmm. always be Aaron enough. And so I share that with students a lot because I think especially being biracial, there's this sense of never belonging anywhere. Mm -hmm. And so I think what I've come to realize is, man, I don't belong anywhere fully, but it means I can belong everywhere. Yeah. And I think, and so I've chosen to kind of flip that on its head as I get older. Like I see that as a real asset that I'm not exactly American and I'm American and not exactly black, but I'm, you know, and it, And so I think there have been different iterations of my identity over time. You know, I played basketball for 40 years. So for 40 years, I was a baller. Like that was such a part of my identity. And I was really worried when I stopped playing ball at 45, like, man, am I going to still be me? And I just translated that athletic pursuit to running. So now I run and I'm competitive that way. And 
So I think there are many pieces to me, and which I think is true for everyone. And so I think what I love about teaching is that I model for my students that you're never one thing. Like not one of us is one thing. And I think too often, especially in the United States, we love boxes here. We Americans love some boxes and we want to put people in boxes. And I just tell people I'm too big for a box, but guess what? <laughs> so are you, right? Like we got to stop with all the boxes and um, I just refuse to let myself be boxed in. But I think when I came to the States as an 18 year old, it was really hard to not allow myself to be forced in the, because people were constantly like you get that checklist, which in mm-hmm. Europe we don't do, but you get the checklist, like put, pick one race in 1989, pick one. And it was capital O-N-E, pick one race. And I remember like, I'm almost in tears trying to fill out this stupid form at college as my white mom is standing next to me and my mom connected what was going on. And she said, honey, just put black. I, I know you love me. Just put mm-hmm. black. I know you love me. She could feel my heart. Like mm-hmm. I was crushed. Like, how do I, how do I pick one and in front of my mom put black? Is she going to think? And so there was a time for me where I picked black, but I didn't even really know what that meant. Right. And so I'm like, man, if I put black though, I don't really know. I knew more about black history than most Americans when I came to the U S because my parents had done more work than a lot of black parents had done. Right. Cause they knew they had to. So I knew more about reconstruction and Jim Crow. And I had read like, all of the things. I'd read W.B. Du Bois, I'd read Langston Hughes, and I'd read it all. But I didn't understand what it meant to be Black, though. So you Mm -hmm. can have this intellectual knowledge of history. I didn't know what it meant to be a Black person until I came right up against two weeks into college, a woman walking up to me and saying, you know, you're only here because we have to have 10 of you. That's how I learned about affirmative action. Mm. Um, I, I came to understand what it meant to be black when I went to the grocery store in my little college town and got followed every single time and then learned from the other Brown women on campus. We were all followed at that grocery. So I, we learned, we couldn't go shopping in our own college town unless we wanted to be followed looking for some toothpaste. Um, I learned what it was to be black. The first time someone screams the N word at me from their truck, as I'm just trying to walk, just trying to be me. Um, I learned what it was to be black the first time I drove in a car with three black friends from college and we got pulled over. That literally my first trip in a car with three black people. And I remember um, whoever it was driving, driving while black. I had never heard that before because I never had to experience it. Mm-hmm. And so I think I have come to understand blackness through a lot of those kinds of experiences. And then as a basketball player, you know, I'm a person of faith and I believe God gives us everything we need to make the right connections. And basketball was the thing that connected me to the black community. It's the thing I didn't have to talk on the basketball court. So nobody knew where I was from, right? They didn't know that I didn't talk like them until afterwards. And so because I was really good, people didn't care. Like she's a baller though. And that gave me respect in the black community. And that's where I just immersed myself in those communities and began to realize, oh my gosh, this is what's happening in America. This place is not the same for everybody. I don't care if we've had the civil rights movement, we have not arrived yet. And that became really apparent to me because of basketball. So I see like each element of my identity at some point has helped shape me in some way, whether it was music or dance or basketball or my hair. So I wore my hair straight till I was 40. And then at 40, I was like, why am I spending six hours to flat iron my hair and be somebody else's pretty? And that changed even just choosing to wear my hair natural, changed how people saw me. 
but it also changed how I saw me. Like it was this way to say, I'm going to show up as all me, six feet tall of me, plus the half feet of Afro. Like I am just all of me and either you like me or you don't, but I'm just going to do me and me is going to be different than other people. And I just became fine with that over time. That's a great, great answer. Thank you. I really appreciate the detail and how they speak to each other, the parts of yourself and some have taken lead, you know, when necessary. I think that's an awesome answer. Um, Talk to me about colorism. Just, just say something about it. Wow, so much in colorism. You know, being light-skinned, I mean, the reality is there are plenty of Black folks that have two Black parents who are as light as me. And, you know, one of the things that I found right away, just the the hate within our own community around skin tones and lighter being better and long, you have the good hair. Like, I just, if I hear that one more time, like, I just, we got to stop it. But I also get where it comes from. Right. Like, because I've studied history, like I understand the house and the, the field and, and all that stuff. And so, but I also understand the privilege that I have, not only being light skinned, but having been raised by white people in Europe. I, what I tell people all the time when I do training in equity is um, privilege in itself is not bad. It's what you choose to use privilege for. And so for me, I, I am aware of so many of the privileges I have and I leverage those and when I show up in a white space, I am still a black woman. That's right you know, not, that's why I have a hard time calling it privilege, you know, because the minute you are in a white space, it's not privilege. Privilege exists away. all the time. <laughs> yeah. Right. Privilege yeah. exists all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have some access maybe that some people right. don't have, but you don't have privilege because yeah. you're in a white space. They'll shut that down pretty quickly. So yeah. I understand what you're saying, but I just like to make that distinction, mm-hmm. but I appreciate that. And I appreciate your understanding of it. And look, you know, the thing about the history of racism, and white supremacy is that the, the greatest tool is teaching us to hate our images of ourselves. Absolutely. You know, absolutely. That, that's what we've been combating forever. Yeah. So it's helpful that you understand it and you present something different to people you teach. Like that's really helpful. All the time. You know, my daughter is adopted and she's really dark skinned and, um, always struggled with, she's the most beautiful. I mean, she's always been so beautiful, but really realizing that, you know, she wanted to be more like me and have hair more like mine and skin. Now she's just coming into herself. So it's fun to watch her at 25, like finally embrace. And your dark skin is so incredibly beautiful. It's flawless. Um, Just own who you are, you know, whatever size you are, whatever skin texture you have, like own who you are and and believe that the packaging you're in is the one that you're supposed to be in. And, and that, that in itself is enough. You know, it's just, it, as you're speaking, you know, I'm, I'm feeling, uh, I'm having like feelings in my body that are just so familiar every time I connect with people of color on our experience, because it's like, you know, white people have no idea the nuances mm. that we have to deal with, think about. Every day. Feel manage, understand, navigate. It's friggin' constant. And so as you're going through all this, I'm feeling it. I'm like, yep, yep, yep. Trying not to nod my head off as you're talking, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's exhausting. On this. I am raising my hand to ask permission. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you for asking permission. <laughs> to join this because what's coming up for me as a white person is everything that I don't know. And just watching the two of you having this conversation in this space. And I love what you said about not being, and it obviously 
your daughter as well, not being someone else's version of pretty. That one is like be you and that you're teaching not just her, but obviously your students in the world to be able to do that. So that that was just my my sorry, my interruption. Yeah, yeah no, I yeah. appreciate it. I appreciate yeah. acknowledging that um, and what it meant, you know, what it meant for you to hear it. You know, what do you what do you feel, Susie, when we're talking about, you know, how much white people don't know? Like what comes up for you is what I don't want to put words in your mouth. Uh, my defensiveness comes up. And I want to be not that white person. I don't want to be that white person that you're talking about or that is excluded. And and the other part of me wants to be that person. The other part wants to just shut up, shut down and give you your space to be able to talk. So I thought about raising my hand. Yeah, no, I get it. Thanks for sharing that. You know, I noticed when a certain posts I'll write, you know, the, the more honest I get, about my experience, the less people will like <laughs> will view it, right? Mm-hmm. And you have to have a certain level of creating comfort in order for people to really, or, or have it be about my personal pain as opposed to the pain of my people. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm unapologetic about that because that's where I am at this point in my life. So everything you're saying really resonates with me. I wanna ask you about a mission statement. If Aaron had a mission statement, what would it be? I want to create brave spaces where people can become their best version of themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think too often safety is actually meant silence. Playing it safe means you don't stretch. I think it takes courage to be your best self. I think it takes courage to embrace exactly who you are. And that's, I tell people, um, I went to a conference once in Portland a couple of years ago and I was checking in in my hotel room and I, I was the only person, I don't know how I managed to be the only person at the desk at the time, but I was the only one. And this young man behind the counter said, Hey, ma'am, I asked this question of everyone who comes through here. Can I ask you a question? I said, sure. He said, if you could have any superpower, what would it be? And I said, well, I already have one. And he said, what? I said, yeah, I already have one. And I just said it just like that. Just matter of fact. And he just, and I said, yeah, I see, I see brilliance and beauty in people. Mm. He said, what? I said, yeah, give me five minutes with somebody. I can see their brilliance and beauty. I'm a treasure hunter. And that's really, I want to I want to be a mirror to reflect back the beauty and brilliance in people, whether it's young people or older people. Um, that's what my mission in the world is. I want us to become the best version of ourselves possible. Well, I can tell your students are very blessed to have that mirror. <laughs> Uh, I feel blessed by them. Well, it is a mutual, right? Mutual exchange and experience. And so um, it's a mutual blessing. I hear you. So what is the key to your individual and relational success? What do we need to know? Wow. Um, Thinking about what my husband would say. So we've been married for 28 years last Mm -hmm. week. And I think he would say I'm 100% present in the moment. So like my students know that when we're in class, I'm 100% present. If I'm doing a a keynote speech or a training, I'm 100% present. And so people know if they're struggling with something and they call, I'm going to be 100% present with you and I'm going to listen. And and I think that's my strategy is I'm authentically 100% present and I will be honest with you in response. So if you ask me for feedback about something, I'm going to be authentic and but I think being present with people, it matter. My students would say that to you that you know she sees us, 
she sees us exactly as as we are. And um, I have a student right now who has just begun to identify as non-binary and has been in my virtual class for about a year and a half. And so has been through this process. Um, we had a student that came out transgender in last January. And then this student began to identify as non-binary in February. And I think both students would say, man, but you saw us though. Like you saw us and you continue to see us just as we are. And there was no judgment or shade. We just felt like you just, and there are times when I mix up pronouns, but they see me just showing up hundred percent for them and just believing in them. And how can I show up and support you? How do I, how do I walk alongside you on this journey? That's difficult. Um, especially the young people, like one of the students is 10, the other one is 12. Um, it's a difficult time anyway, when you're trying to figure out what box do I fit in, but just, I think the kind of space that I create is a space where you don't have to be in a box. And so you can be non-binary and okay, like, how do we support you to be the best version of you? How do I support you in doing that? And, um, and that's what I, I hope my students see, whether they're five-year-olds or 85-year-olds. I want them to see that however they're transitioning and figuring out their own identities, I'm going to show up and be your cheerleader. And I'm going to help reflect back to you, like the beautiful things that I see when sometimes you can't see them for yourself. You know, you were just saying, basically, you're a mirror. And, and so our next question, and I don't want it to be redundant because you've said so much about it already, but being the treasure hunter and being the mirror and being authentic and being in the moment. Can you tell us what you feel your responsibility as an educator is? Wow. I mean, I think, first of all, I think we're all educators in our own way. So I don't even, <clears throat> the class that I have now is a class that I do for free. Like I'm not getting paid for it. My students get no credit for it. Um, it's, it's my gift that I'm putting out into the world right now for the last year and a half. But I think formal educators, especially, have a responsibility to teach students, again, to be the best version of themselves, which means you got to create spaces for people to be brave. I think that's my responsibility, to teach people to be brave and to create spaces where people can learn to have civil discourse. I think that's our greatest flaw right now as a country is we have no, we are bad at civil discourse. And, and I would say as an athlete, as a lifetime athlete, we're just not practiced in it. Most people have not been taught how to do it. And we stuck at it, not because we naturally, because we've not practiced it. And so I, I see my job as a teacher is how do I create spaces where we can have the necessary conversations that help us get to the best version of ourselves. And the best version of ourselves means I may not agree with you and you may not agree with me, but I'm still going to see you as a valuable human being in the world. Like I can actually disagree with you mm. and still love you. And that's where I see my classroom as a space where we learn how to live even and especially people who are not like us, who don't believe the way we do. Um, how do Love is not a feeling, it's an action. It's a way that we choose to show up in the world and a way we choose to treat other people. And so I see that as my responsibility as an educator. How do we learn how to love more effectively? And I have to model that by loving first as, as the teacher. I have to first love you. I have to first love you. And y'all, I've taught some knucklehead kids. <laughs> I've worked in some spaces with some knucklehead children. And you know what they will tell you? Miss Jones always loved us. Even when we were knuckleheads, she, we always knew that she loved us. Love that. You've said that schools are political and we agree with you. 
Can you share with us, say more about that? What you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think especially white Americans think about school as apolitical. Like it's not a political space. It's just textbooks and you shouldn't be talking about Democrat or Republican. <laughs> but political is not Democrat or Republican. Political is just how we talk about power in the world and how people engage with power. And so I mean, what our textbooks, what is written in our textbooks is incredibly political. Like who gets to decide what is in a textbook is, incre- I mean, that is top, top level political. So who are the faces that are in our textbooks? What are the stories that are told? Who are the authors that are elevated? Who is seen as getting to do math? Like who are our science experts, our math experts? All of that is political. And I think the challenge, especially right now, with so many people fighting against, I don't even want to get into critical race theory, but fighting against this this thing called critical race theory and fighting against Black Lives Matter and ethnic studies and all of that is this myth that somehow school has been apolitical. And that somehow, you know, I hear people a lot in my work talk about, well, we don't want to make white kids feel bad now if we teach black studies or we talk about equity or racial justice. Well, so you're okay with black children feeling bad about themselves. You okay with our immigrant children feeling like, let's be real about that. Like that's a political decision to decide whose narratives get to be elevated and who is denigrated. We, that's a political decision. And so everything about school has always been political from the beginning, who gets to go to school, who gets to go to school, where I think I heard in one of your Instagram posts, something that totally resonated for me. I got into teaching because I realized at 18 years old that school in America, public school in America, the outcomes are driven by skin color, race, zip code, and home language. Those three things have greater are greater predictors of how students will experience public education than anything. And if that's not political, I don't know what is. I mean, the fact that we fund schools based on housing taxes is incredibly political, right? So it's all, man, I could talk about that all day, but school is very political. Well, and speaking of politics, what was it like for you to delve into politics? (laughs) I will never do that again, (laughs) ever. (laughs) So, I mean, I was the first black woman in my state to run for any statewide office. Nobody has ever tried since me. Um, and and had I known what 2016 was going to look like, right? Like, think about this. I'm the first black woman running during the Hillary Trump election. Like if we had, and my husband has a master's degree in American government. So we talk about this all the time. Like, had we known what that dynamic was going to be because it showed up in my election for sure showed up in my just the dynamics around gender and the dynamics around race showed up on a regular basis and um that part of it sucked and for that reason like i would never do it again and i know that having run it introduced me to all the power players so i know all the big dogs now um across our state republican democrat independent um at every level like statewide um local I could, I could get on the phone with almost any mayor in our state at this point. And so here's what I know. I don't regret having run because it opened doors. I can leverage that now. Back to something JD said earlier, I have access now in places that I wouldn't have access had I not run. And so I have used that access to connect my students to opportunity. Um, you know, if I hear about people who've lost their housing, I can call a mayor and say, hey, 
I got a girlfriend who just lost her house. I need you to figure this out because there's some racial dynamics here that at play and I could go to the newspaper, but I'd rather you just figure it out. And so I've been able to use my, that experience to really connect people to opportunity. But then also that experience has allowed me to push both parties to say, you know what, neither one of y'all are clean when it comes to race and racism. And so I have really been able to hold both parties to account on issues of race and equity. But it's another reason I won't run again, because I think neither party's clean and neither party cares about my and people like me about our flourishing. And that is, if I learned nothing else in the process, it was that. Is any of that in the new book, Bridges to Heal? And did it open a door for you to be able to write this book? Tell us about the book. Absolutely. So yeah, the book, Bridges to Heal. I'm so excited. (laughs) And you see the Afro, see the Afro there. We had to have that and the the earrings. I am known for Afro and earrings. But the book... Man, the book was birthed out of really 50 years of life. So it is uh, my, it's it's not an autobiography, but it's autobiographical. So I use stories from my entire 50 years of life to really challenge people to think about what is it going to take for us to heal ourselves? Um, us as an us, but also US, the United States of America. Um, and I think being involved in politics really allowed me to see this much broader, especially when you run statewide, you get to see things from this much broader perspective. And I, I realized in 2016, but I'll say the last year watching the presidential election of last year, just the grossness of that and January 6th is really what motivated me to write this book. So I was crazy busy and just said, I can't not write a book. Like I have to write, even though I am crazy busy right now, busier than I've ever been professionally, I have to get this book out of me. And so even in the midst of my busiest season, I just, I had a coach and I just wrote and wrote and wrote. And yeah, the election definitely had impacts, but I would say the last two years of watching how we misresponded to the pandemic and how we have approached the killing of black men and just black bodies. And anyway, our lack of concern for the minoritized and marginalized, um, was what drove me to write this book. And I I hope that it will, it's not meant for like social justice warriors. It's meant for those people on the edges that really maybe don't understand how to enter the conversation yet. I think people who are in the work will find themselves in the book. They will Mm -hmm. see, oh yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm there too, girl. I've done that too. I've been there. Um, But I'm really hoping to get those people that are right on the fringes that are tiptoeing a little bit and just need that pull those white people. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But I think the Brown people though have found like, okay, I'm not alone. Okay. Mm. I'm not crazy. And so I think the Brown, even though the book is not written for black and Brown people, a lot of my black and Brown friends are finding Where can people find it? Where can all people find it? All people can find it on Amazon. I don't love Amazon, y'all. So I I wish it was somewhere else. But, you know, when you're on a shoestring budget and you don't have lots of connections in that regard, um, it's on Amazon. And then um, if people are in Washington State or in California, I'm doing book release events so people can come get it from me. Um, And then I do a lot of work in California. So as I go to California, I'm just going to bring my own copies with me. Thank you so much for coming. I'm going to sign off and give it back to JD. But thank you so much for this conversation. 
Bridges to Heal Us is the name of the book. And I am on Instagram at Aaron in 2016. I'm on Twitter at Aaron Jones in 2016. Of course, 2016 is the year I ran for public office. So that's where that comes from. <laughs> um, if you try to friend me on Facebook, I have 5,000 friends. I didn't know that Facebook had a Mac, but I do have two public pages on Facebook. Um, Aaron Jones 2016 is where I talk about what I'm thinking. And Aaron, Aaron Jones Dreams is where I share resources for educators and parents who are interested in understanding this equity work better and talking about racial justice. So I want to thank you, but I also want to thank you for uh, just agreeing so quickly to come and talk about you because you caught my attention right away. And I was like, oh, she's got to come on for sure. And thanks for not making it difficult to, to get you on here. You, you were about as excited as I was. So that's really cool. Um, I hope to stay connected. I hope yeah. you come back and share your work with us. Uh, I think you're awesome. Thank you so much for being oh, here today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for what you do. Thank you so much. I mean, just a little bit. I know I was in the jolly good. I was like, wait, oh. who, is, who is this? Who's Jenny? <laughs> and I, I literally liked your page right away. And I've been following. And I just so appreciate the work that you're doing. And I was so honored when you reached out oh. to me. I'm like, what? What? You want to interview me? I'm just Aaron. Like, I'm nobody. So I just feel really honored to have spent this time with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care and hopefully we'll see you soon. JB and I want to thank our fabulous producers at I Am Music Group. And for all of you out there who want to do your own podcast, go to IamMusicGroup.com and the team will hit you back. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller.